What's up guys? Welcome back to another episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical, where we talk all things training, nutrition, and mindset optimization, while making sure to not lose sight of the practical and applicable side of things. I'm your host, Jordan Lips, and I just wanted to say thank you for taking time out of your day to tune in. I appreciate you. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we are talking about sleep and more specifically, my experience tracking my sleep for a year with the Aura Ring. We're going to talk about what is an Aura Ring, why is sleep important, what was I measuring, what were my hypotheses, what did I learn, and we'll wrap things up with some key takeaways. So first and foremost, why is sleep important? We could talk about this all day, so we're going to keep it nice, short, and sweet. Sleep is important for optimal cognitive function. It's important for optimal athletic performance. It's important for mood. Poor sleep is correlated, associated with almost every negative health outcome. Increased risk for heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, depression, worsened immune system, literally everything. And in the context of fat, fat loss, or fitness, getting proper sleep keeps your ghrelin levels in check. Ghrelin is your hunger hormone, so having poor sleep is going to increase your your baseline levels of ghrelin, which will associate with more hunger. And man, if you're in a fat loss phase, you don't need to be doing things that give you more hunger. You're going to be hungry to some degree at some point anyway because you're in a deficit. So getting proper sleep is one of those you know best practices in terms of def- defense against hunger. Sleep is primarily when your body repairs broken down muscle tissue from exercise. It's well known that during deep sleep, we see elevation in growth hormone, which again is important for recovery and adaptation to exercise. Sleep, bar none, is the cheapest, most accessible, and most potent performance-enhancing drug and fat burner that we all neglect. So, what is an Aura Ring? An Aura Ring is basically a high-quality sleep tracker. And for some of you guys might be familiar with Whoop. Whoop is a very similar product, um, has very similar sleep analytics. It's a wrist wearable. So it's like uh, you wear it on your wrist like a watch. The Aura Ring, as it says in the name, is a ring. Um, Very quickly, I'd say the pros in terms of Aura Ring versus Whoop, and this is not what I want the podcast to be about. I think Whoop is an amazing product, just not the one I happen to purchase, Um, is that the ring is more comfortable to wear to sleep than things on your wrist, in my opinion. I've, I've worn Fitbits, and we can talk about that at the end, Fitbit sleep trackers. I've worn Fitbits. Sometimes I've worn my Apple Watch. I don't like wearing things on my wrist to sleep, but the Aura Ring on your finger is something that you can forget about. It's not something that um, inhibits your sleep anyway, uh, in any way. And of course, when you're tracking your sleep, you don't want the thing you're wearing to be something that's negatively impacting your sleep, which is something we'll talk more a little bit more about later. Also, the Aura Ring versus the Whoop. Aura Ring allegedly has better sleep analytics than a lot of those wrist wearables, Fitbit, uh, Apple Watch, uh, Whoop. But frankly speaking, any of them are going to give you really important feedback. And we're going to talk today about how getting in the weeds on that feedback isn't as important as recognizing trends and associations. The cons of the Aura Ring in terms of just its function, it's really not great to lift weights in. Um, It's also an activity tracker, so it does also track activity during workouts and during the day. But I found that when I'm lifting, it just, I was always nervous I was going to scratch it. That thing's like fucking $500. I was like, I scratched it once and I was like, yep, not wearing this anymore. And um, just kind of stopped wearing it during the workout. So it really just became a sleep a sleep tracker. Uh, and that's really what I was after it for. I really wanted the sleep analytics. 
you know, we can go into another time how I don't really think that those that that tracking your exercise while you're doing the exercise is helpful in any way, shape or form, unless you're a professional athlete. I think it's just noise, uh, things that distract you. Anyway, don't get me started on that. Yeah. So why did I get Nora ring in the first place? Well, like you just heard, sleep is important as fuck. And I had been sleeping like shit. I was sitting up in bed at night, not able to sleep, uh, having anxiety. I was, you know, my mind was racing. I was waking up a million times in the middle of the night. I was waking up too early, you know, way before my alarm. My alarm was like 5.10, by the way, and I was waking up 3.50 and 4.30 and unable to actually sleep as long as I wanted to. So I was having trouble on the front end where I couldn't fall asleep. I was having trouble in the middle because I was waking up too much. And I was having trouble on the tail end because I was getting up too early. And truthfully, like, I was convinced that I was just a bad sleeper. People are like, oh, I'm a good sleeper. I'm a, you know... I thought I was just a bad sleeper. This is just this is just me. I don't sleep well, you know? That's fucking bullshit. That is bullshit. And if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, no, I just, I don't sleep well. It's like, no, you're just not taking care of your sleep hygiene. Sorry, don't get me roused up here before we start. Anyway, I was forever convinced that I was just a bad sleeper. And frankly, I had been diving into... Um, a lot of these analytics, I was at this point in my life, I was I was going through, if you guys have, guys have listened to the My Story episode, I was diving deep into like my blood work and my overall health and diving deep into like a lot of this data-driven health field where, you know, people are getting blood work every two seconds. I was checking my DNA. Um, I, I, I wanted to see my sleep analytics on paper. I wanted to see the numbers. I was, it was a super data-driven part of my life and, and that's cool. And, and actually you'll see, I definitely learned a lot. Um, but it was definitely in a time of data obsession, you know, getting blood work every three months, um, you know, doing DNA fitness tests and all of this stuff. So it definitely came from a place of like, I want to track everything I can so that I can optimize everything I can. You know, the the old adage, what gets measured gets managed. And while that is true, I was certainly at a point in my life where I was taking it to the nth degree. And again, we'll touch on that towards the end as to like, what are the key takeaways you can get from something like the Aura Ring without taking it too far where it's consuming your life. So what was I monitoring? What are the variables that I was monitoring and which direction did I want to see them go? And I'm going to try and not get lost in the weeds here because I want you guys to understand uh, a lot of the key takeaways and not necessarily get too lost here. But I do want to kind of touch on what the Oura Ring measures and what's a lot of these sleep, not just the Oura Ring, the Whoop, your 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 Fitbit might actually track HRV and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but I do want you guys to have a baseline understanding of what it is that these things can track, why they're important, what direction you want them to go. So first and foremost, I wanted to track my HRV. HRV is like, it's like the new hotness. It's had this crazy glow up in terms of health and fitness lately. It stands for heart rate variability. So this was the main reason I was getting the O-ring. I wanted to track my HRV. I wanted to see, you know, um, if I could use it as a tool to optimize training. And again, we'll talk about that in a second. So what is heart rate variability? Basically, as it states, it's the variation between your heartbeats. And the best way I can describe it is imagine you have, you know, your heart rate is 60 beats per minute. Now, you might think that that's equally like a metronome, one beat per second for 60 straight seconds. However, that's not how your heart works. You're not, your heart isn't, for the most part, beating uh, uh, in a, with no variability. So if it's 60 beats per second, it's unlikely that it's beating one beat per second every single second on the dot for 60 seconds. And if it were, that would be probably not a great thing. So 
Heart rate variability measures the balance between your parasympathetic, your rest and digest state, and your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight state. When your HRV is higher, when you have more variability between your beats, right? So 60 BPM, maybe you have, you know, instead of every single beat on the second, maybe it's 1.2 seconds and then 0.8 and then 1.4 and then 0.6. And there's a big variability between those beats. That would indicate a more rested state. When HRV is lower is when you're in a heightened, anxious, or fight or flight state. So let's take that same 60 beats per second. Having one beat exactly per second would be a very low, would technically be zero variability. It'd be every single beat on the second. There's no variability. That would indicate a heightened, anxious, or fight or flight state. So again, high HRV associated with rest and digest, general fitness, and good recovery, right? So that more parasympathetic, that more rest and digest, that more relaxed state, that, you know, more relaxed place of homeostasis. Lower HRV is associated with fight or flight stress, illness, or overtraining. So you can see how how you can potentially use this, this marker as a, you know, what stressful state am I in? Am I in a really heightened stressful state? Am I in a really relaxed state? And one thing that I quickly learned is that HRV is specific to the individual and what's low for someone might be high for someone else. The best way to use it as a tool is to use it in relation to your baseline. So basically, you know, you can have HRV markers. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this anywhere from like zero to over a hundred, the higher being quote unquote better, right? You guys are with me. If, if you're having really low HRV, really low variability, it means a chronic flight or uh, fight or flight status, right? You don't want to be in that sympathetic state too often. You don't want to, that to be your baseline state. So if you have really low HRV, it means that you're constantly in this high, stressful, anxious fight or flight state. You don't want that. You want to have a low, uh, a higher HRV, which would indicate a more rest and digest, more parasympathetic dominant state, a more relaxed state. However, you can't just take that one number and think, okay, I'll give you an example. I have a friend who wore the aura ring. He gets in the 80s and the 90s. I get in the 40s. The high 40s for me is amazing. Now, does that mean I'm in this chronic fight or flight state and that I'm, you know, need to rest and lay down and meditate fucking nine hours a day? No. There are a lot of genetic factors that go into this. So I'm never going to have 100 HRV. I'm never going to get, I'm not going to increase my HRV by 100%. But what I can do and what I recommend if anybody uses any of these products is get a baseline, track your HRV for a month, two months, get a baseline for like your ballpark and then improving that baseline average, you know, 10, 15, 20% over time or at least when, when, you, when, uh, when it would be advantageous to do so, maybe during rest periods, deload, stuff like that, seeing those numbers improve. Um, that's kind of where you want to want to come from. You don't want this to be something where you're you're obsessing over what your friend gets or what somebody on the internet gets. You see somebody posting their stuff on Instagram and you're like, oh, my number is not that high. Like worry about your number and making your number go up a little bit over time because there are so many genetic factors that you can't do anything about. Maybe I am more baseline genetically in a predisposed fight or flight state and I can't really do anything about that. What I can do is make sure I check all the boxes that are going to put me in the best position for me. And there was a long time I didn't understand that. I was very pissed off that I had a friend of mine who, yeah, he's going to listen to this podcast. He's going to laugh. Like, he just smokes a bunch of pot and, like, like doesn't take his fitness and health as seriously as me. And here I am, like, getting the score that's, like, 
in all in all dog shit. Um, but in reality, it was about me focusing on my baseline. So last thing I want to say on your HR, on HRV is right now training, using HRV to dictate your training is all the rage. Um, you know, if you have a, if you have really high HRV, right, you're in this nice parasympathetic rested state. People are like, great. Those are the days you go for a PR, right? Those are the days you train really hard. And if your HRV is low and it says you're in this really high stress state, you don't train, right? Very, you go for a light day. And this idea that you're going to wake up every day and just look at your sleep score and be like, oh, my HRV is low today. I'm not going to train. Or, oh, my HRV is high today. I'm going to go for a PR. It's just not practical. It has been shown in the literature to not to be a, a, a good proxy for how hard you should train that day. It's just not a good acute number. So if you're listening to this, you wear a whoop, something like that, like don't use each individual day to dictate what you do that day. Use, you know, zoom out a little bit, take blocks of time, like weeks and months to decide, okay, this is, you know, I'm in a heightened state this week or these, these over these two weeks. Don't take it in such an acute sense where you wake up, you see your HRV, and then you decide what to do for the day. Great, moving on. Second variable I was looking at was heart rate, right? Pretty simple. Um, generally related to overall fitness, right? Lower The lower your resting heart rate, sorry, resting heart rate, um, the lower your resting heart rate, the better. So you see these like marathon runners who have like, you know, 48 resting heart rate. Great, like they're in super sick shape, especially cardiovascularly. But generally speaking, lower is better. And if you see yours start to creep up, it's usually an indication of something is wrong. And as you get more fit, you tend to see it trend downward. I was tracking sleep latency. Now sleep latency, very simply, is the time it takes to fall asleep. So, you know, a lot of people actually do struggle with this. This is actually what we talked about in terms of my sleep was like, th this is the front end. This is the time between when you decide it's you want to go to sleep, when you decide to close your eyes, and the time where you actually fall asleep. And that's where a lot of people do struggle. They decide they want to go to sleep, but 30 minutes later, they're still awake, staring at the back of their eye mask or, you know, I wear an eye mask, so my girlfriend's gonna listen to this and laugh, but um, sleep latency is where a lot of people do struggle, and I and it was somewhere where I was definitely struggling. I would just roll the toss and turn for the first 30 minutes, which is just unacceptable. I wanted to track my sleep cycles, which is, again, something of a buzzword these days, but keeping it really short, I wanted to see how much REM and how much deep sleep I was getting. REM sleep, really quickly, important for memory consolidation, learning, and creativity. And REM sleep is usually when we have our deepest, most vivid dreams. REM sleep is when you dream. Deep sleep, most restorative and rejuvenating sleep stage, enabling muscle growth and repair. Most people don't get enough deep sleep. A lot of people don't get enough REM sleep either, and we're going to talk about some of the things that might affect that later. But a lot of people just don't get enough deep sleep. And it, and it has, and listen, both of these are very important. But it seems that our our uh, we tend to get a lot less deep sleep than we really need. A lot of our lifestyle factors tend to inhibit proper amounts of deep sleep. And especially for fitness goals, this is when your body is actually enabling muscle growth and repair. This is when we see really high elevation in, in growth hormone. And we know all of the good things that come from that. So that's what I was, th those were the two sleep cycles I was most interested in. I also wanted to see wake-ups and sleep disturbances, like those little moments in the middle of the night. And, and we talked about the front end, which is sleep latency. The tail end is like you're waking up too early. And then we have this time that you're actually asleep. In the middle, I was wondering, okay, how many times in the night am I getting up? Because truthfully, I was peeing like two or three times. I was tossing and turning. I would wake up for 40 minutes at a time. 
it just didn't make any sense. So I wanted to see that on a graph somewhere so I could, you know, just have it look me in the face and not be able to bullshit myself. I also wanted to monitor body temperature, basically, generally, noticeable increases in temperature above your baseline in the night isn't a good thing. You want your body to be relatively at homeostasis. You don't want your body to get really, really hot overnight. And, and if it is at a baseline or it's, it's, it's significantly above baseline, that's usually a pretty bad sign. It's like, okay, you're coming down with, uh, with a sickness or you're overtraining. So that's a really good marker for like when you're trending towards something bad, like overtraining or an illness. And obviously I was using it to track my steps and we don't need to go into that. So those were all the things that I was tracking. I was tracking, tracking HRV. I wanted to see my heart rate variability. I wanted to see how baseline parasympathetic or baseline sympathetic I was. And I wanted to make sure I was doing things to improve that. I wanted to see my resting heart rate. I wanted to make sure that, you know, it was at least in, a, in the ballpark of like what a fit person's would be. I also wanted to see if it was going up over time as I trended to more towards an overtrained state. I was tracking sleep latency. I wanted to see how long it took me to fall asleep. I was tracking my sleep cycles. I wanted to make sure I was getting enough, enough deep and REM sleep. I was tracking how many times I was waking up in the middle of the night. And I was tracking my body temperature. So now we're going to talk about 10 things that I found affected my sleep. And I want to make this very clear. This is my experience. Now, I think a lot of what happened to me aligns very well with the literature and things that you know, but it's still my experience. And if you try some of these things and it doesn't, it doesn't work that way for you, like that's cool. That's your experience. And yes, there are, there's plenty of science to back up a lot of the experience I had, but yes, again, it is my experience. This is not me making a generalization for freaking everybody. Um, but I will make a note when, when things are really aligning with the research. Second, these are a lot of things that you already know are not good for your sleep. These are things that you already know negatively impact your sleep. However, seeing it in the app had a profound effect on, on my denial that these things mattered, right? Watching it on a graph, watching my, you know, even just the, the, the graphics of it, where it was like, okay, a low sleep score, like you literally get a sleep score from one to a hundred every single night. So watching me, let's say have late caffeine or have alcohol for bed or have a late meal. And then seeing that sleep score across the board, come down, heart rate up, HRV down, you know, body temperature up, like seeing a lot of those combination of things be affected by certain factors. Like it was no longer a mystery. Like a lot of the literature, it says X, Y, Z is bad. And you're like, okay, cool. But like, you know what? A lot of people who drink, they're like, you know, it was very clear alcohol wrecks your sleep. And people are like, yeah, 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 no, it's cool. I, I sleep fine. But like, man, when you see it for the first time on a graph and it's like, no, 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 this is what alcohol is doing to your sleep. And we'll go over that in a second. It became very real. And I could no longer be in denial that I was the reason I was sleeping like shit. And my habits were the reasons I was sleeping like shit. And it wasn't just because I was a bad sleeper. And I had to really start taking these things that I knew intuitively were not good for my sleep and taking them seriously. Lastly, before we get into this, yes, those, yes, seeing it on the graph and seeing it in the app made me take it seriously. However, something I learned towards the end of using the Aura Ring is that you can't let what the app tells you totally dictate your actions every single day. Yes, you should recognize that alcohol wrecks your sleep, but that doesn't mean you probably never drink again, right? Yes, caffeine wrecks your sleep but that doesn't mean there's not a place for it. And you wanna find the balance of how do I really feel versus what the app is telling you, right? And if you wake up with a sleep score of 65, which is horrible, 
and you feel fine and you feel good. And, and I don't mean feel fine like you're bullshitting yourself. I mean, truthfully, feel fine. Don't let that number, don't let the data fuck with you. Do what you got to do. And if you feel good, then be like, man, I'm going to take this, this number with a grain of salt. And I'm going to talk about that in my final thoughts here. But the first thing I was testing was meal timing. Now, it does not matter when you eat for fat loss. As long as your calories are in check, you're going to lose fat. However, if I had a really big meal, particularly a meal high in fat before bed, my body temperature was up, my deep sleep was low, and I could clearly feel that I wasn't getting restful sleep. And, and I think that last part's super important. It was something that was, you know, uh, um, it was it was actually causing me to feel a certain way. It wasn't just the numbers were changing. It was manifesting itself in a way the next morning where I could actually feel it, right? We all think of like that Thanksgiving meal that makes you pass out. And you're like, oh, I just had so much food. Like that's good for my sleep. Like, no. First of all, that's called postprandial somnolence. And it it's just you eating a lot of food and then becoming acutely tired thereafter, that isn't you getting good sleep, right? That doesn't actually mean you get a good sleep. Really late meals fucked with my sleep. And that tends to be something that we see very consistently in studies is really late meals before bed, large meals, right? It's not like you're having like a little Greek yogurt or something or a little shake, like, you know, an hour or two before bed. I'm talking about like having a really large dinner and then going to sleep an hour later your body is still digesting that food. And my body temperature was up because guess what? Your body's still working. My body was still working that food through the through my GI tract and thus was not able to actually get into that heightened parasympathetic, parasympathetic state and actually get good sleep. And that's definitely something that aligns with the literature. Um, again, for fat loss, total calories is going to be what, what matters. This is not something that's going to inhibit your ability to lose fat. But getting sleep is very important across a fat loss phase and across your life. So indirectly, if you keep having these huge meals before bed and you get poor sleep and then your ghrelin is up and you're cranky and you have, you know, quote unquote, lower willpower, man, that can have negative ramifications, knock on effects down the road. Second, caffeine. <laughs> Don't get me started. We could do a whole episode on this. Um, caffeine is a half-life of about four to six hours. And, and, and honestly, that's super general. It's a little bit higher for some people, a little bit lower for some people, depending on your, your DNA, technically your genetics. And remember, half-life, half-life, not full cycle, half-life. Most of us are in denial about this. Half-life, it means that after four to six hours, half the caffeine is out of your blood, half. So if you have 150 milligrams, which is just a regular cup of coffee at like 3 p.m., man, at 9 p.m., half the caffeine is still in you. Like, it's not like it's gone and you can go to sleep at nine, great. Like, only half of it is gone. And that is just flat out too late to be having caffeine. And I don't like making hasty generalizations because every person who listens is going, no, it's, I sleep fine. Like, no, you don't. You don't. And that's part of the reasons that actually tracking your sleep for even just a month will show you, man, it's actually not as good as I thought it was. And most people who are saying I sleep fine don't actually realize how good they could be sleeping. Like you might sleep okay, but it's the sleep you're always used to, which is not great um, in in relation to how it could be, but it's totally fine for you because you don't know how good it could be. So if you're having caffeine, let's say after 3 p.m., man, you would, basically what you're doing is you're setting up a, a positive feedback loop, maybe a negative feedback loop, but let's see. I think it's positive feedback loop where you have the caffeine at let's say 3 p.m. and then you don't sleep well. 
and then you wake up, you have caffeine in the morning, and then by the afternoon, you're exhausted again because guess what? You didn't sleep well the night before, so you have caffeine again. Oh, well, guess what? You're not gonna sleep well that night, and then the next day, you're gonna be tired, and guess what? More caffeine. So understand that breaking the cycle takes some courage, but if you nix that 3 p.m. coffee, you go to decaf, like you'll see your sleep start to improve, which will need you, which will cause you to require less caffeine the following days and weeks, um, you know, in the afternoons. For me personally, I don't have any caffeine after noon and my sleep has never been better. Again, my experience, just want you to look at your caffeine intake, your timing, and, and just do an audit and say, is this really serving me? Am I sleeping well? And just do an experiment. Get rid of that 3 p.m. coffee for two weeks. See how amazing and how unnecessary it actually becomes in the afternoons because, oh my God, I have this natural energy because I actually got deep sleep. Wow, amazing. Alcohol. In the literature, we see pretty clearly that alcohol blocks REM sleep. This is a big fucking deal. I'm gonna say this right now because this one is, I'm super passionate about this. Like, you don't need a glass of wine to go to sleep. You, you, not only do you not need it, but it is bad for you. It is a bad idea. Like it might improve sleep latency and in some context might make you more relaxed, right? Might help you relax, but it's a net negative. There are other ways to get that relaxation effect without having this blockage of REM sleep. It's bullshit. You're using it as a band-aid because you like drinking and it's a form of escapism and that's fine. I like drinking too sometimes, but in context and understanding that there's a trade-off and that if you're gonna have alcohol close to bed, that you are sacrificing some quality of sleep and understanding that it doesn't need to be five, six, seven drinks. It can be one or two drinks close to bedtime and that like quote unquote nightcap or I hear this all, I need a glass of wine to fall asleep. Like, first of all, no you don't. And second of all, you're trading quality sleep, quality REM sleep at night for an improvement in sleep latency and relaxation and I understand that you don't need to make that trade-off. We can get that relaxation and that, that decrease in sleep latency other ways, right? Meditation, we'll talk about that one uh, next, I believe. So honestly, listen, if you're if you're listening to this and you've, I think this one and caffeine always grind my gears the most. It's like, you don't need caffeine in the afternoon. You need to get good sleep. You don't need a glass of wine before you go to sleep. You need to just relax and do something for yourself and take some alone time and you'll get better sleep and chances are you won't need that glass of wine going forward. Sex, dum, 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 no, seriously. Um, sex is just, I'm gonna bre- breach over this because man, let me just, let's be honest, sex is good for literally everything, period. End of story, you wanna get good sleep? Do your thing or do your things with, with other, somebody else, but all right. Anyway, sex is good for literally everything. If you're wondering how it affects your sleep, you're good to go. Meditation, oh, nothing has had a bigger glow up than meditation over the years. Um, I'm gonna cut to the chase. Meditation is definitely helped me get into a relaxed state, kind of like that alcohol that we were talking about. Definitely helped me get into a calmer, more parasympathetic state before sleep, but I really didn't enjoy it. Um, and it has never consistently worked for me. And I have found that I can get that relaxation, that parasympathetic, that calming effect by doing other things. like. It's just a matter of finding out what things do that for you. Like for me, it was reading a book. You know, it was putting my phone on airplane mode. Stop looking at Instagram. 
uh, maybe just turning on a podcast and laying on the couch, like find something before bed. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, that, that brings you back to this baseline state. It brings you back to a, a relaxed state. And if it's meditation, that's great because meditation has been shown again and again to lower your heart rate, you know, improve sleep latency, improve your HRV. But man, how much of that is just you taking some time out for yourself and relaxing and not worrying about everything in your life? And if you can achieve that by doing something else, you should feel empowered to do that, in my opinion. Melatonin. First and foremost, what is melatonin? Melatonin is a hormone, and you can think of it as your sleep hormone. And when melatonin is present, your body thinks it's nighttime and thinks it's time to sleep. So when people take, first of all, when you take exogenous, meaning outside of the body, if you take melatonin in the form of a pill, you're taking a hormone. And just, I want people to realize that's not not serious. I'm not saying melatonin is serious. You need to be worried about it. We don't have a ton of literature on it being dangerous or anything, but you're taking exogenously a hormone that your body should be making naturally. You shouldn't need to take melatonin. If you need to take melatonin, it's probably a Band-Aid. So melatonin did, in my, in my experience, exactly what it was supposed to do. It increased or decreased sleep latency, which means I fell asleep faster. And if you if I took an extended release melatonin, I definitely saw less wake-ups during the night and a little bit better deep sleep. So there is some utility for melatonin. I would say that using it on occasion when you're, you know, those other boxes haven't been checked is totally fine. Probably not something you want to be using every day. And if you need to use it every day, there's probably something else at play. For me, just for reference, using 300 micrograms, that's micrograms, that's 30% of a gram, less than a gram, less than one gram, was enough for me to really see some good effects. If you're taking 10 grams, that is a bomb of melatonin. And again, I'm not telling you that you can't do that, you, you know, that that's dangerous or anything, but just I would advise you to experiment with lower doses and see what is the lowest dose that gets me what I want instead of just jumping to a 10, 10 milligram bomb. I'll be asleep in 16 seconds. But over time, you can imagine there might be some tolerance effect. And if you can use lower doses, probably probably better. Um, got four more here. So late workouts, not rocket science. Workouts elevate cortisol, put you in a fight or flight state, get you in a stressful state. But that's the fucking point of working out. So working out late in the evening has been shown in the literature to have some ne negative effects on sleep. Now, what I will say is that if you have to work out in the evening, then great. It's probably still a net benefit on your overall health. Just try and put as much time between your workout and sleep as you as, uh, as much time between them as you can. And I think you're good to go and probably next the pre-workout. Definitely next the pre-workout. Overtraining. Now, I could definitely talk about this one for literally forever, but I'm going to try and keep it short because this, this podcast is already going longer than I had expected. But man, this one was a big one for me. And if you've listened to my, my story, my podcast, um, you'll know that this one is uh, really important for me. As you continue to train nonstop, without deloads, without taking proper rest times, your heart rate, your HRV, your temperature, your respiratory rate, your sleep latency, your time that you're asleep, will all trend in the negative direction, in the wrong direction. And one of the best things that the Aura Ring gave me is it showed me all of those trending in the wrong direction, the more into an overreached or overtrained state I got. And it was very obvious. Like we are, we're, we're, most of us are like baseline default overdoers. And deloading and taking rest periods is, is for a lot of us the harder thing to do. And sometimes 
A coach telling us that we need to do it isn't even enough. But man, this ring and the the data that it was showing me, like it was it was conclusive. It was it was there was nothing I could say. I couldn't argue my way out of it. No, I feel fine. I feel good. Everything was trending in the wrong direction and telling me I needed to, to deload, take a break. And then when I did deload or take a break, maybe a week or two weeks, I saw everything trend in the positive direction, in the right direction. And it became very clear that this shit, taking rests, taking proper rest periods, managing your volume, your intensity is extremely important. Blue light, man, blue light is all the rage right now. I'm gonna try and break it down for you guys very simply. Blue light is light, you can imagine light from the sun is the most potent form of blue light, but light from the sun also has other spectrums of light alongside it. It's not just concentrated blue light. Your phone, your laptop, your iPad, your tablet, that light coming from that, your TV is a very concentrated form of blue light. And without the other spectrums of light, that blue light suppresses melatonin, melatonin release. And because we know melatonin is the hormone that when present tells your body that it's nighttime and time to sleep, man, suppressing melatonin at night is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Um, it's no mistake. It's no coincidence that looking at your phone in bed, that watching TV in bed, that doing work on your laptop late at night is going to have a negative impact on your sleep. It's gonna suppress melatonin. You're not going to get into that nice deep sleep. That blue light is very stimulating. It is very stimulating. You don't want to be stimulated right before you go to sleep. Great, so what did Apple do? What did Mac, you know, uh, uh, other laptops do? They came out with this night mode, right? Um, your, your screen goes, you know, amber, it goes, it goes a little bit red. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not doing shit for you. It's not cutting off the blue light in a way that actually makes a difference. If you insist on being your phone on your phone or your laptop or watching TV later into the night, please, 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 please hear me when I say this, go get a really good pair of blue light blocking glasses. And, uh, I will attach a link to the ones that I wear in the, in the description of the podcast here. They're just like a red pair of glasses, like you'd see like Elton John wear or something like that. And they just do a really good job of blocking that high-end blue spectrum of blue light, that very stimulating blue light. Um, and it can be very helpful if you tend to be on your electronics later at night. Now, beyond that, I don't think that that is a cure-all. I don't think that that immediately makes blue light totally fine at night. But, it, but <laughs> if watching TV with your girlfriend at night really relaxes you and it puts you in a really relaxed state and that gets you really good sleep or that helps you, that's something in the positive column, wearing blue light blockers can at least negate some of the negative uh, blue light stimulation. Anything else I wanted to say on blue lights? Um, yeah, even if you're wearing blue light blockers, which you should probably wear if you get them when the sun goes down, you should probably also just put your phone on airplane mode and get off all electronics at least 30 minutes before bed best practice is probably about an hour before bed. Read a book, you know, put a podcast on, uh, talk to a loved one, play a board game, make a to-do list, like whatever. But probably getting off your electronics an hour before bed is, is best practice regardless. And the last two, last two, and then we're gonna wrap things up here. Um, marijuana. I'm gonna start off by saying that I don't smoke. 
I'm not a pothead. I've, I've smoked as you know, you count the amount of times on on one, maybe two hands, and um, I don't really like it. I've I have asthma. Uh, I've just always been into like sports and stuff. It's not really been my thing. But there's a lot of talk about CBD and THC and you know its effect on sleep and anxiety and and um, I really wanted to find out for myself, just from an experimental standpoint. Just this scientist in me wanted to be like, hey. I've read this. Does this work? And truthfully, I was not. I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. Um, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't leaving any stone unturned, and that I wanted to, you know, do whatever I could, or at the very least, just experiment with it. There were some people that I was looking up to that were talking about how it was really helping them. And man, if you Google enough stuff and you get into an echo chamber, you anything can be good. So I was like, hey, let's try this out. First and foremost, I'm sure that this is different for everybody. And the more people I talk to, the more different experiences with marijuana that I hear. You know, I had a panic attack. It immediately makes me pass out. I get the munchies. I don't get the munchies. Like the whole spectrum. All I can tell you is that the one positive that I did see um, did align with a lot of the literature. My sleep latency went down a lot. It, you know, quote unquote, it made me pass out, right? It made me go to sleep very quickly. And what I will say is that there is a subset of people out there that this will bet that this will benefit them. That they get into bed, and their mind is racing, and they toss and turn, and they stare at the back of the eye mask, and they and they can't get to bed. Now, what I will say is, before you go and get you know call your local dealer for a dime bag here, you have a much better chance of improving that kind of stuff by getting off your electronics earlier, you know, meditating, avoiding late meals, avoiding late workouts, you know, working on your caffeine timing, not drinking, you know. Before you do any of this, that stuff is going to be more potent and less illegal depending on what state you're in. Um, yeah, so that is all I wanted to really say on, on marijuana use. Uh, it was a very short-lived experiment. But... Sleep latency did improve. Um, I didn't see any improvement in deep sleep or anything like that. A lot of people do talk about that being something that's improved. I didn't really have that um, experience. But if you're having a ton of sleep latency issues, you can't go to sleep. Uh, I don't know. I would probably check those other things first. I would check them twice or three times before doing any of this. And the last thing is the act of actually tracking your sleep. And this is going to be the beginning of me wrapping this up. Man. All of this is super fucking cool. Tracking my sleep was one of the coolest experiences that I've ever had. Um, it, it was something that I am, I implore a lot of people to do. And it taught me so much about all these factors. Sleep, I mean, in alcohol and caffeine and late workouts and, and overtraining. And man, I learned a ton. But there was a confounding factor in all my experiments. And it was that I was tracking my sleep. And the act of tracking my sleep gave me anxiety. Like wearing, I, I literally straight up Lord of the Rings moment, I would put the ring on and I would feel like a different person. And that, that might just be me. You might be like, this guy's fucking nuts. But the minute I put it on, I felt like I was taking a test. And I felt like, you know, I would wake up first thing in the morning and I would turn off airplane mode and I would open up the app and I would check my sleep score. And like, it got to a point where, I was sleeping worse because I was so focused on sleeping better. And I think that there's so many correlates to tracking calories or tracking your workouts or 
things can be taken too far. And I and I'm not and I'm not saying that tracking calories, tracking your workouts events ends up being obsessive and, and becomes a negative. All I am saying is data is super cool and what gets me- measured gets managed and you know tracked metrics are improved metrics and all of those good things. But you got to be honest with yourself when the data is not serving you, when it's a net negative. And I'm sure I could have had some logical self-talk and talk myself out of the fact that, hey, like, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, you focus on how you feel. Don't worry about the met- metrics so much. But man, towards the end, after the first six months, actually the entire time, if I'm, if I'm being totally honest, like I would put the ring on and I would go to sleep and I felt like I was taking a test. And every morning I would check my score. And it was cool and I learned a ton and I'm very grateful for this experience. But there is a reason I don't wear it anymore. I'm wearing it right now, a little nostalgia, but there's a reason I don't wear it anymore. Um, it sits in my in my desk drawer and I just, I never take it out anymore because I've learned, I'm not saying I've learned everything. I'm not saying I'm a fucking sleep wizard, but I've learned what I needed to learn about my lifestyle habits and the things that affect my sleep. And once you've learned, it might be worth thinking about not doing anymore. Which brings me to my final thoughts and we'll come back to that. The aura ring is super cool. Data is super cool. Wear it for long enough to learn. But if it becomes something that's becoming a negative, take it off. And honestly, it can't help me think about tracking. I think tracking calories is amazing. I think it's one of the most amazing tools and under the right guidance and support can be fucking life altering. However, that data is only as good as how you feel using it. And you should use it for as long as it's serving you. And be honest with yourself when it isn't. And so if you're tracking calories and that data is empowering your life and opening your world and making your food choices more more flexible and you're really enjoying it and things are great, that's awesome. Tracking is helping you. And I find that under the right guidance, that is in uh, uh, by far the majority of people. But you might have done it for a year, two years, three years, and it might now be teetering into a point, again, I'd say this is the vast minority of people, um, but it might be teetering towards something that's, not serving you. You might have learned so much from tracking your food. It's an amazing educational experience. But it might now be something that you know what you need to know. And now it's something that, you know, you might be afraid uh, of not using. And you tracking might give you anxiety now. Where before it gave you a feeling of validity of, of, of you know, of doing what you know you needed to do, right? An affirmation of, okay, these are how many calories I'm eating. This is what I need to achieve my goal. Make sure that the tracking is having a net positive on whatever goal you're looking for. And for me, there became a point or there came a point where I had learned what I thought was what I needed to learn. And now every time I put the ring on and I looked in the morning, I looked at my sleep score, like I wasn't learning anything drastically new. You know, if I got a bad sleep score, I was like, okay, like no shit. Like you, uh, you know, had caffeine at four o'clock or you, you know, had two drinks with a friend and then came home and passed out. Like, I learned what I needed to learn. And at that point for me, it was time to take it off. And I, I just want somebody out there to who's hearing this, who wears their aura ring every night, their Fitbit every night, their sleep tracker every night, their whoop every night. If you're having anxiety, I want you to, and, and you feel like when you wear it, you're taking a fucking test. Ask yourself, is the data you're getting still teaching you something new? And if it's not, and you're just taking a test every night, the best thing, if, if you're wearing, it's probably because you want to get good sleep. And let me tell you, my sleep, has been the best 
subjectively, right? I'm not tracking it. Subjectively the best since I've taken the aura ring off because I'm no longer feeling like I'm taking a test. I've learned to cut my caffeine off at 12. I've learned not to drink before sleep, to make sure I have my last meal like two to three hours before sleep, not to work out last thing in the evening, you know, um, to meditate or take some time for myself to get myself into a parasympathetic state. I've learned all of those things. I no longer need the app to tell me. And I hope that if you hear this, you're like, cool, let me track my sleep for six months. Let me learn what I need to learn. Let me test some things out that I'm curious about. And then let me stop before I start getting anxiety about it. Those are my final thoughts, guys. This podcast went longer than I wanted it to. I hope you learned something. Um, I didn't want to go too deep into the weeds on sleep. I think we can do that a ton. At the end of the day, sleep is super important. It's important for your cognitive health, your your emotional health, your physical health. You know, it's associated negatively with basically every health marker, every health risk, um, long-term disease factors, like getting sleep is super important and what gets measured does get managed and tracked metrics are improved metrics. So if you've never tracked your sleep, I implore you, go get a Fitbit, go get an Oura Ring and go get a Whoop. Like you don't need to spend a ton of money. The Fitbit does a pretty decent job when compared to the Oura Ring. I've seen studies, I've seen people comparing them on Instagram. Like it seems that you can get just as much out of it in terms of a learning perspective from something like a Fitbit, your Apple Watch. I mean, Apple Watch is pretty expensive. Oura Ring's like 500 bucks. Um, but it is enlightening to see some of those things you've been in denial about. That afternoon coffee, it's bullshit. That nightcap, it's bullshit, right? You watching TV in your bed, you on Instagram in your bed, it's bullshit and it's not serving you. And your health and fitness, your mental health, your physical health would all improve if you started to take your sleep hygiene more seriously. And I hope that some of this stuff was enlightening. If you have any questions about anything deeper with the Aura Ring, you you know, I posted my stuff on my Instagram for a long time. So if you're ever interested in about dissecting any of those data points, I'd love to talk about it. And I appreciate you guys listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.